So we're going to dive into a series called, from 1 Peter called Postcards from Babylon. And unfortunately, the computer crashed and we scrambled to get the words up. I had all of my very zhuzhi notes for you to see and now you'll just have to hear them. Postcards from, from Babylon. And um, I just want to invite you into about 10 weeks to discover a truly remarkable story. It's interesting to me how many, for how many people this particular book has become pivotal in the time in which we live. I cannot tell you how many churches have either just gone through 1 Peter, I didn't know that, who are talking about doing 1 Peter or currently in 1 Peter. It seems prophetically that God the Father has something to say to us in this book. So I'm asking you, even if you miss a Sunday, you've got somewhere to go, people to see or whatever, try and get the podcast. We don't make much of the podcast, but they are there to keep us in step with the story as it unfolds. So grab your Bibles, and can I encourage those of you who look on your phones, and I'm happy you got your phones, try and bring a hard copy. There's something pretty cool about fingers on paper, and I think there's something, and you can just say, hey, you're an old-timer, you're a boomer, you have no idea, I probably don't. I still really like it. Now, this Bible is special because Dana and Stu gave it to me on my 60th, so I've marked it flat out, but... Yeah, I do like fingers on paper. I've given you time to get there. Just two verses as we launch out into what I think will be a very wonderful conversation. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by His blood. I thought we're going to stick with these two verses tonight, and we're going to skedaddle our way through it. I'm going to try and do it in as close to 30 minutes as I can, and um, just help us. I, I think this book is, oh, let, me, let me say this. You know, all of us, when we read the Bible, we read it through lenses. So I'm 63, so I'm a boomer. If you haven't noticed, I'm a man. I know. Um, I am a South African. I'm married. I have three kids. I have lived in two countries. I've led three churches. I've been preaching the gospel for 43 years. So all of this means I have a lens when I read the Bible. Now, does that mean it's wrong? Oh, absolutely not. It's as long as we are conscious of the fact that we come to the text and we read it with a certain bias. No one reads it completely objectively, and that's why we need each other, and that's why a church needs more than one teaching voice, because if you only get my teaching voice or anyone else's, you will end up getting my bias, my angle, my lens, and I think the joy of this little community of ours is the number of voices we get teaching into the space. I'm so looking forward to it when I come back from South Africa, Courtney, wherever you are, um, and Paul, wherever you are and David are going to co-teach with me. So we get more voices, we get more eyes. Joe and Tyler and Dan and Merrill and Dana will teach anyway, but there'll be some fun times with three people who haven't taught in the community who'll be co-teaching with us. That's way more important than gathering around one teacher. That's just not a healthy thing. Now, over and above our bias and preferences and prejudices comes this reality that we all have a hermeneutic. And hermeneutic basically means that we inadvertently pick up 
a lens, a reading glass, if you wish, when we read the Bible. So over and above the things I've already mentioned, I have a familial hermeneutic, which basically means I can't help myself. From Genesis chapter 1 through to Revelation at the end, I read the Bible through the lenses of family. It makes the most sense to me. I love the fact that we're introduced to Father God, then He creates a family, a husband and a wife, a father and a mother, and the story begins. And it lands ultimately when we are with Him, forever dwelling with Him, whether it's down here, replacement or renewal theology, or whether we're up there, I don't know where the new heavens and the new earth will be. Geography is less important than position. And to be with Him, I honestly, you know, I preached in a little church in Huntington this morning. They've taken an absolute pounding during COVID. I just looked around the room. The guy who hosted it, his dad died two weeks ago. His son was, was to be born on his father's birthday. The pain and the tragedy. I looked around the room. I thought, whoa, I don't know you, but I know you. Addict, hard life, thought partying was everything. Now you middle-aged to older the wear and tear of a partying, cool lifestyle has now made you lonely, single, and hurting. What a day it will be when we go to be with Him, or He comes to be with us, whatever your eschatology is. What a day that will be when there'll be no more tears, no more heartache, no more brokenness. What a day that will be. I have a familial hermeneutic, which means when I read the text, I find family. I don't find business, so I'm not looking for org charts, strategic thinking. I'm looking for family. I'm looking for where is God the Father revealing Himself through Jesus, His Son? How can I, as a father of a family or a spiritual family, do life the way this Scripture speaks, always trying to adjust myself to it. Well, are there other ways, Chris? Yes, there are. In South Africa, we had many people who had a, a social justice lens. The only thing they read was social justice, the injustice, oppression of some, and Jesus is the great liberator, and He's going to come and bring liberty to the oppressed. Some of that's true, some isn't. Others, in turn, look at it through the lenses of the arts, creativity, um, joy, celebration, darkness, heartache, brokenness, and the artist in them leaps to it. One of my, God was very kind to me as a young pastor. I had a very close friend. We now ran a number of marathons together, Mike McMeek, and Mike was an artist, is an artist. He's in Australia now. And I remember running down the hill, uh, West Ridge, which was past some tennis courts on the way back to my house. We'd probably done about 20 miles and he said to me, early, early days, he said to me, Chris, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? And I said, you know, Mike, I'm not sure. And he literally stopped me, grabbed my little running vest, and said, you know, we need you to have an answer. It was literally an arresting moment for me. And so we all read the Bible through the lenses we have, and your hermeneutic is a very important way in which you read this text. So is it a surprise that as we look at Peter first and foremost, and that'll be the chunk of what we'll do, and then we look at two other smaller pieces, I look through the life of Peter, and I look at this book that he's written, this letter he's written, and I see Father. That is what I see, first and foremost, not only. Here we have a translated 
essence in terms of our day, the day in which we live, which is, and I wrote two Ds, Tyler, just to keep you happy, disease, the pandemic, deconstruction, the undoing of our faith that is so rampant and so sexy and so glamorous. We don't need Jesus, we've got all the gods. We don't need church, I've got community. We don't need a government in a church. Everyone can just hear God for them. I mean, there's just this deconstruction after deconstruction. And I've often wondered, how do we deal with disease and deconstruction? And I think Peter writes this book with such deep paternal affection. I said to you in writing the book of Hebrews, my, the theologian I drew from was uh, Adolf Hartmann, the German theologian who believed Hebrews was written by Priscilla. I concur entirely. But this book, I think, was written by Peter, as Polycarp and others confirmed. And it's this father's heart that keeps leaking through. Here is a discouraged, disillusioned, doubt-ridden world in which this church is shakingly trying to hold itself together. Paul, we hear, has died. And so some of that mantle that was on Paul, the love of Christ compels me, Paul says. I carry daily the burden of all the churches, Paul writes. But it's almost as if the mantle or the weight or the pastoral concern now falls on the Father. And so I want you to consider that with me for a moment. And partly because Father to some of you is not a kind word. Father does not bring up great images. The father that you had may have been absent. I'm, my job is to provide for the family. I don't have to be there. The father you might have had may have been abusive sexually. I, I do not know how a father can sexually abuse his daughters. I, 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 I find myself torn between empathy and rage. But tragically, it happens, and happens way too often. Oh, a father may have been too ambitious. I want you to achieve what I couldn't. Oh, come on, you can, you can do this. You can do this. My brother was telling me about this kid who wants to play for the top rugby team, and he really sucks. And uh, he said, so Hendon spoke to him one day. He said, dude, what are you doing? He said, my dad said, I can be anything I want to be, and I want to be in the top rugby team. And Hendon had to say to him, you can't. You're just not good enough. See, but an ambitious dad driving the agenda, forcing something on him, an absent, abusive, ambitious, and ambivalent father, just disengage, just whatever. You decide. See, inadvertently, what we as fathers are doing is we are giving away the high value of seeing our children shaped in his image and in his likeness. It's not easy being a dad. I was preaching a message similar to this many years ago, and uh, I, what I didn't know is one of the men in the middle of it walked out. It was a Sunday morning in Durban, South Africa, and he called his dad, whom he hadn't spoken to for 10 years. And he said, hey, Dad, it's Terry here. And there was this pregnant silence on the phone. The relationship was completely estranged. And he said, Dad, I just want to tell you I love you. And he turned the phone off. His mother called about five minutes later and said, Terry, you're not going to do something. Right? You're not going to commit suicide or something. Right? 
And he said to his mom, no, mom, I've realized that I've never loved my father the way he deserved. Was he absent? Yes. Was he abusive? Yes. Was he ambivalent? I think that's worse. Because there is the space where we can have actively engaged fathers who are pouring themselves into their sons and daughters. And dads, can I say this? I don't know if anyone's watching this. I don't know to whom it's relevant here. The notion, and I see it way too often, of giving their daughter away to the mother. Will you look after her? I will look after the son. I can tell you without any reserve, my daughters needed me, and they needed me more as teenagers than they needed me as little girls. As little girls were cute, they flirted with me. Rolled their little eyes, little hips went out. You know, the whole thing. Catch me, Dad. Catch me means you guys are supposed to chase us. No matter what Woke says, you guys are supposed to chase us. Never forget that, gentlemen. Never forget that. But when they became teenagers and they couldn't cope, now, you know I'm very honest, so forgive me. And Dana's here, I don't seek to embarrass her. But when the breasts start developing and the legs start taking shape and the length of the skirt becomes an issue, Dad, not eliminating mom, but it's dad who gives their daughter sexual identity. Because he's the number one lover of her soul. He's the number one person who helps her grow in her identity as a woman. He is the first man who teaches her how to love. And the way in which he teaches her how to love will reflect on the way she loves one day. An emotionless father will either create a daughter that is sexually crazy, needy, desperate, or a sexually disengaged, not creative, not interested in sexual intimacy. It's a big thing. I love the gospel. I love the word of God. I can see some of you just sitting, just quietly, almost too nervous to move. That's the power of the gospel where God comes in and heals us. There is a place where we're actively involved and invested. I don't want to embarrass Stu, but he has so impressed me. He's worked. You know, they're staying with us because they're renovating their, their house that they bought. And so we said, come and stay with us for a few months and, and so on. And, um, and then sometimes, you know, I wake up very early. I don't sleep a whole lot. And uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning, he's out to go and do a sidecar shoot and comes home to make sure that he's always there at dinner time to play with the kids and engage the kids and put them down and read them a story. And then oftentimes after that, he'll go home, go to their house and work till midnight. He had every reason in the book to say, Dana, I just can't come home. There's just too much to do at the house. And there is. But there's something else about an actively engaged father that creates confidence in his son or his daughter. I, if, if, and this is a point of response later. If you have been hurting and limping because of this, and even the notion of fathering, or when I tell a fathering story, you are super irritated. God can come, and God can restore that. God can come and do a healing, if not with your biological dad or your stepdad, or even your spiritual dad. I'll tell a story about that in a moment. But it's allowing the Spirit of God to come in and heal you. Because if God is your Father, that means you keep Him at arm's length. There was a girl in the church I led at Southlands, up in Brea. 
wish I could use her actual language, got radically saved. At the age of 16, she jumped out of her bedroom window, went to a football party and got raped by several boys. She came home, she told her dad, her dad's comment was, I told you not to go. Really? Her dad said that. Needless to say, she had a then unfolding story of abusive boyfriends who beat her up, have sex with her. And she said, the only reason why men wanted me was between the sheets. And if that's what they wanted, that's what they got. So she came to faith. And uh, two instances come to mind. One was Dana and I were walking to a prayer meeting and she looked particularly pretty that night. I would never say it if I was alone, but with Dana there, I said to her, Kristen, you look beautiful tonight. She came to me two days later and she said, no man has ever complimented me without wanting sex with me. And on a separate occasion, she came to me and she said, why the F is God a father? Why the F is Jesus' son? Why couldn't my Redeemer have been a woman? Well, we know why, isn't it? We know the pain she carried. Every Father's Day, she still sends me a message, a text, an email, thanking me. Because inadvertently, I didn't do this with that in mind, but I became the father she never had. Are you with me? Allow God... Because without the knowledge that God is Father, and he chooses Peter, I believe, as a father to write this incredible letter. Read it through those lenses. I did again this afternoon a couple of times. Look at how the Father speaks with affection. Use your imagination. Think of it as round a table. And, 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 and Dad's away somewhere. And he writes a letter or sends an email. And Mom said, hey, kiddos, kiddos, this is pre-phones. Dad sent a letter. Can I read you what he said? Oh, come on, Mom, tell us. He's, he's in the military and he's in Korea. And uh, what does he say? How's he doing? She reads from this letter. Oh, I love you so much. I miss you every day. How are you doing? Looking after yourself? Are you making sure purity is beautiful? Now, I'm not quoting from the text. I'm you stirring your imagination. Because I think without the imagination, we think of an academic in a library writing a letter for people to read, and we miss the moment. This is that moment where Dana and I looked at, at Kristen and said, Dana, uh, Kristen, you look beautiful today. This is that moment. This is for me what 1 Peter does. It's not an academic exercise creating lots of theology, and it's beautiful in theology, but it's a father burrowing into the heart. Think, if you wish, of, of his daughter marrying someone, and it's a brutal marriage, and, and, and she gets hurt, and, and, and he abuses her, and, and he comes along, the father does, and he offers deep love and deep affection for her. And to get that, I believe, and I can be wrong, I don't mind, if you want to fight with me, I don't mind. But it's almost like Acts chapter 2, for those of you who remember the story, the Spirit of God falls, and 3,000, well, the Spirit of God falls, and they like, no one knows what to do. And it says, Peter stood up with the 11, and he speaks to them, and 3,000 come to faith. It's that same fatherly moment 
that Peter uses here. I hope Sam and Tyler don't mind. I won't divulge any uh, privacy things. But I remember how Sam, Sam bounded into my house. I knew nothing about her. And Haley and others said, Sam's coming. And there was a buzz that all the Vanguard kids, because Sam was coming. And uh, they said, you will, see, you will hear her before you see her. Oh, I think I'm going to like her. And she bounded into our house one night. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know, and she bounded in. But I looked, and there was a sadness in the eyes, in the energy and enthusiasm of the moment. Well, most of you who know Sam knows that her relationship with the dad was never great. And so I knew the moment I heard the story, I knew that there would be a distance between us. And it would take time. Because why must she trust me? She's never trusted a father in her life. And I would hug her and I'd feel the stiffness. That's fine. We've got time. And I've watched. Spirit of God has gotten her to fall in love with Father God, to see the power, value, and wonder of fathers in the community without the complexities that had shrouded her mind. Tyler, his dad walked out on them when he was a baby. He had, dad died, I think he was six, Tyler, when your dad died? Fifteen. Oh, wow, it was later than I thought. Long story, I won't give you the detail, but I knew the moment I got his story, I thought, okay, this isn't an automatic, Chris, I will follow you. And I won't give you the details other than there's a memory for me. You know, there are, there are moments in the church's story, M mythology, if you wish, in the best sense of the word. But, but one of, whenever I hand over, which will be who knows when, there'll be a moment in Tyler's lounge that I will never forget. Because I don't think he could trust me. And we sat down one day, and we had a very intensive conversation. And he got more elevated and more emotional and threw in some choice words. And I thought, I have nothing to say to you, Tyler, except this. I will never leave you. I will always be here for you. You see, sometimes it takes a journey for us to be able to find Father God and find fathering, not as an enemy, not as a point of, of, of pain and trauma, but something beautiful. If you can, for a moment, just think of those that Stu and I were talking yesterday, um, of all these refugees, whether they're Syrian refugees who are saw en masse in Athens, or the um, Afghan refugees in Pakistan. And I've used it a few times because it's, it's had such an impact on me. And I cannot but think, and again, forgive me, but just to earth it and make it real, of a father with some teenage girls and one little luggage container and dragging along. And, and how do the girls have their parents? How do the kids poop? What do they do with it? All sleeping in one tent and a, and a a, a, a toilet facility over there somewhere for months, if not for years. What does the pain of that feel like? Peter, I think, was a father, and he wrote this book, a letter, as a father to the church, a hurting church, a disorientated church. 
The second thing I want to say about Peter, just quickly, and I'll be much quicker with this, hopefully. Uh, Peter is author. There was such pain, um, as I mentioned earlier on his father, pain and prejudice and the pressure to perform. Um, but Peter seems to understand this trauma. Now, now, think about it for a moment. Dana quoted a statistic to me yesterday. CNN ran a poll which said 72% of young Americans would choose a calm life over an exciting one. 72% of young Americans would choose a calm life over an exciting one. Think about it for a moment. Peter's got his boat, his business. I'm assuming he's got a home. He's got a wife. We know that. And uh, for all intents and purposes, he's got a pretty cool life. Why would he leave that? What was compelling for him to literally drop his nets, his investment into his business, all that that held? Imagine him trying to go home and telling his wife, remember the business I had? I have it no longer. I met a guy. Sometimes we hide our brokenness, for some it's humor, for some it's sarcasm, for some it's distance, for some it's pride, but, but we hide it, and there's no better place to find how people hide their brokenness but in Instagram. But when Jesus met Peter, it was by the beach, and we watched the highs and lows of the story. I, come and follow me. Hi, on this rock I will build my church. Low, get behind me, Satan. I cannot imagine saying that to one of you. I mean, I would definitely, I mean, yeah, I can't imagine it. Highs, being on the Mount of Transfiguration, the special place. Jesus said to the three, hey, come on, guys, we're going up the mountain. And I'm sure, I mean, they were a bunch of dang guys. I got chosen, buddy. You suck. You know, behind Jesus' back, of course, like, yo, whatever, you know. I'm going with him. And then they come back with a bit of a spring in their step and like a real thing. And, and uh, it's, you guys won't believe what happened up there. I mean, you, you guys can't believe what happened up there. And this little kid is rolling around in the fire. I say, Jesus, we don't know what to do with him. After every high, there is a low. Um, and then there is the sense of, you will deny me three times. And then they have their last meal together, and they pray together. And then he falls asleep, and then he defends Jesus with a sword, it seems like. And then there he surrenders. It's like being at the park looking after your kid, and this little young nanny, May, doesn't make sense to us, nanny does. And she comes in, oh, where are you from? Oh, do you follow that Jesus guy? And this little nanny is so dang scary. She says, absolutely, blankety-blank, not. I love the honesty of the Bible. And then there is the high at the beach where they sit and they interact together. This is the Peter who's writing this. He understands the pain. He understands the disappointment. He understands letting Jesus down. He understands the highs of great God moments on the mountaintops, and then a place where our rank humanity just screams at us. But then he was also an apostle. And I want to mention this not to get into the whole geography of it. I don't want to get into apostolos and apostello and all that stuff because time is never my friend. But I have to know why Jesus was so compelling. I have to. 
What did he know about Jesus that I don't know? What did he? Uh, Josephus wrote this, the great um, kind of writing, uh, writer of antiquity. He said that the Roman soldiers who crucified the many prisoners taken during the siege of Jerusalem under Titus diverted themselves. They had fun. They diverted themselves by nailing these prisoners to the cross in different ways. Like, yeah, whatever, that's just too easy. And so what they did, uh, Seneca the younger says, I see crosses there, not just of one kind, but many in different ways. Some had their victims head down to the ground. Some impaled them by their privates. Others stretched out their arms uh, in the gibbet. What was so compelling that Paul, Peter knew this was going to happen? Listen, if this was fake news, there's no way he's going to get himself crucified. He's got a wife. He's got a family. He's walked away from his business. He's probably lost a lot of money. I've got friends who are chartered accountants, walked away from Deloitte's. They would be multimillionaires today and live and eke it out off a pastor's salary. And I said to Rob, Rob, why is Jesus so compelling? Then rather than that, a beach in South Africa, a beach house, a big house in Umschlunga Rocks, fancy cars, tons of money, trips abroad every year, not that anything is wrong with that, but what was so compelling about Jesus that Peter said, I don't mind that happening to me. To understand this letter, you have to understand this. The father who was gentle and tender, the author who understood the brokenness because of his own life, and now the apostle who knew that destiny was martyrdom. That's who wrote this book. Ah, that's a third of my message. My invitation to you tonight is to allow God to wrestle His way through, one, your own struggles with the notion of fatherdom. When I arrived here 23 years ago, I was 38, I was kind of good looking, I think, long, long time ago. I look in the mirror and like, who are you again? Because I don't remember you. I remember that guy, I don't remember this guy. People said, if I said to people, oh, well, I'm a pastor, they say, oh, that's cool, thank you, thank you for coming. You what, you're an old white guy? I'm going to ask you to be honest tonight. Ty, can you help me up here, please? I'm going to ask you to be honest on the fathering thing. I'm going to ask you tonight, if that is an issue, please, as we go into this story, these beautiful chapters that amazing people are going to unpack, it, unpack to you, please do business with God tonight, whatever that may mean to you. Number two, as a leader... This, this notion of I'm hiding behind something. I had a difficult childhood. And the way I coped was with humor. My tongue was the fastest, it was the loudest, and the most aggressive. That's how I survived. So I walked into a room, and I thought, I'm not going to be intimidated by everyone, so I'm going to be the one who intimidates intentionally. I'm going to walk in loud, I'm going to walk in strong, and I'm going to own the room. A little five foot ten. Dutchman. 
What was that doing? It was hiding. It was hiding an inner pain inside of me that spoke of brokenness and insecurities and vulnerabilities. What's yours? What's the wall you hide behind the mirror that you are petrified to look into? Because when all of your defenses are taken away, that's the real person. And to be honest with you, I was petrified for that person to be discovered. Meryl said to me, especially after she started the therapy, she said to me, babe, why don't you go to a therapist? And I looked at her, and normally I would joke it away. I would just goof around. And uh, I looked at her and I said, babe, because I'm scared to find out what's behind there. Scared to find out what's behind there. What's behind there for you? Not only will this book become richer, but I think God will, by His Spirit, stir up the beauty that's in you, the mystery, the wonder that's tucked in there. And then lastly, that whole idea of the apostle, and that really means Jesus compelling. You lost Jesus being compelling. Why? Why? Church can lose its uh, beauty too. I get that. Jesus never, never, never. Woman that was caught in the act of adultery, who was probably brought naked. That was the cultural custom. Not the man, the woman. And she was brought naked and she lay on the ground, and all these religious high officers stood around her staring at her nakedness. Naked woman is highly captive, especially when you've got control over her. Jesus gets on his haunches. He's not looking at her, not at her nakedness. And he just starts writing the finger that gave him the covenant. The same finger writes in the sand, and I think it's language of grace. And he looks up and he looks her in the eyes because he doesn't want to look at her breasts. He looks her in the eyes and he said, where are those? Where are those who accuse you? And she said, oh, Lord, they are not here. And he said, neither do I accuse. But go and sin no more. Don't you think that woman held by Jesus? Don't you think, Jesus, sorry, this is taking so long, but I just, I want to minister to you. Sorry, we didn't get to exiles and Trinity. <clears throat> Can you imagine the eyes that Peter looked into on the beach? My imagination is just rich in these moments. He's denied the Lord. He did the only thing he knew. He went back fishing with his mates. He thought, I don't know what else to do. I've screwed it up so bad. And he went back fishing with his mates in Galilee. And the word was, meet together at Beach X. And I can only imagine him sitting there or just floundering. I do not know what to say to Jesus. I have no words. And I think he looked into the eyes of his Redeemer, the eyes that compelled him, and the eyes for which he would ultimately be crucified upside down. And he found grace. And he found favor. And he found affection. And he found forgiveness. That's why he went to the cross. Can I pray with you? Can we? Would you mind standing? You've been sitting a long time.
Yeah. Yeah. Just really quickly, um, I was reminded of Psalms 51, and it says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And as we were closing, I just thought, you know, this is going to be a remarkable time in First Peter. I think God's going to do a lot. But even tonight, we come into a space and we can choose how we respond. And that verse, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a willingness. Return, what does the psalmist say? Grant me a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the image of a father who is perfect and good. Restore to me the idea of a God who is working in my life. Whatever that thing is, whatever needs to be restored, corrected, brought back to joy, brought back to life, that's what we are invited into. When he says God the Father, he is inviting us to a new picture of himself. He is inviting us to a renewed and perfect picture of a savior, of a God, of a father, of a redeemer. And I just felt, even as we close it this evening, that the invitation is this. Won't you create in me a clean heart? Won't you wipe away the, 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 the stain, the stench, the, 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 the baggage of, of the world, the baggage of, of, of my mind, the things that creep in when I hear the scripture. Some of you sat tonight and, and didn't enjoy the truth of God and didn't enjoy the image and couldn't process the stories because there is a there is a a, 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 a residue of something else. And so even as we close, I, I want to invite you, I want to invite me to pray these words. God, when I walk into church, I know I carry with me X, Y, and Z, particularly tonight, I think in regards to Father. But you know what? He can create a new heart. He can create a new mind. He can restore that which was stolen. He can redeem that which was taken. The resurrection means there is always a new beginning. Can you begin again? The resurrection says yes. So will you pray with me? Pray, pray this prayer. Even now, if you're comfortable, open your hands, close your eyes. And this is our prayer. God, Father, create in us clean hearts won't you scrub away the residue of what others have done to us and what we have done to ourselves won't you renew the steadfast spirit your spirit inside of us that calls life out of us that calls joy out of, out of us won't you won't you call that spirit up again the spirit that was created in genesis and sustained us the very life of god the very breath of god that is within us won't you allow us to stay tucked into your presence? Won't you allow your Holy Spirit to be close, to be intimate, to be working? Won't you restore the joy of salvation for those of us who, who sit tonight in, in cynicism and uncertainty, another message? No, no, there is joy here. There is life here. There is truth here. Won't you restore that joy to us? And won't you grant us the willingness, it says, 
to be sustained by you, to be given life by you, to be given truth by you, that the fatherness of God, that the fatherness of your nature would be life to us. It would be joy to us. It would be truth to us. That we would come to your scripture, not with, with cynical hearts full of baggage, but with, with eagerness, with joy, with excitement, because there is truth and there is life to be had in Jesus wonderful name. We want to eat and drink deeply of the truth and the restoration and the redemption of our Father God. In Jesus' name. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to do this. We're going to sing. Those of you who do want to come up, and it takes boldness and courage to say, you know what, can some people pray for me because it really is a thing. I'm going to ask you on the fathering thing to come this side, and Joe and some of the others will come and pray with you. If you know that there is a place where you hide behind, a curtain that you hide behind, because you're just petrified for people to get to know you, I was. I was. I'd love you to come up and come pray, and Shelly and a few of the others will come and pray for you as well. Um, if, however, you just want someone next to you, a friend, a family member to pray, just tug them. Just say, hey, do you mind praying for me? And we're kind of going to wrap it up in some chaos, just kind of deconstruct it a little bit. Um, we don't need the words up. We just need to pray for each other. And let's use that moment as God tees us up to this great book with one of those three things. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, what are we going to sing, Tyler? You got a song for us? Of course you have, with your brand new guitar. Of course you have. So I want you to come up now. Family, we're super chill, and uh, we, will, we will be super keen to pray for you. Or just tug your mates' uh, shorts or whatever and just say, you know what, I'm going to do this thing. Thanks, thanks. Take your pick. Take your pick. Who do you want to pray for?